Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 215, Friday, November the 12th, 2021. And don't forget to send an email to us, vetgurus at gmail.com. Say hello, tell us where you're from, what you're doing, what you've got planned for the holiday season, what sort of creatures you've seen recently in your vet clinic. We love getting emails, don't we, Mark? We do. We love that communication, that connection. It's one of the things that surprises me about our podcast, Brendan. I think I've mentioned a number of times how it was just going to be you and I talking and maybe my mum would listen in every once in a while. Um, but um, but no, it's it's been very special to develop an audience and we love hearing from them and interacting with them. So send us a message. Send Go to our uh, website, get that email um, and uh, and send us a message. Absolutely, vetgurus at gmail.com. Now, we're going to do another good feedback from last week's episode, Mark. Um, a nice, fairly quick um, rundown on a specific technique, extraction of incisors in rabbits. And I think our listeners like the short, sharp sort of um, how-to sort of techniques and that, although this week's one might be a little bit more philosophical. <laughs> don't, don't we change um, it up. <laughs> yes. So, um, yes. So um, it, when you send an email to us, yeah, ask us um, what sort of topic you would like us to do. What do you want us to chat about? What veterinary or non-veterinary topic or review or film or series that you want us to chat about? And only one of two things can happen. We'll ignore it or we will chat about it. So, yeah, don't be <laughs> scared. Don't be afraid. It's just Brendan and Mark, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and when we... Yes. I was going to segue into something, that, but I've jumped the agenda. You have? You've I done have. Pe- well, yes, no, you, uh, you've We're given not us a good... Attack. We're not give- going to attack, Brendan. No, you've... Not uh, like... You've, you've got my segue into my news article, Mark, and I'm not quite sure why I put this one on here, and it's about otters attacking. Alaska is on alert, Mark, after the some otters have bitten children and dogs, Mark, and... Um, yeah, the Alaskan Department of Fish and Games have river otters have attacked people and pets in some of the city's most popular outdoor areas, according to the Anchorage Daily News. And officials have asked people to be extra careful, Mark, when they're around rivers, creeks and lakes along the city's green belt. And a woman was bitten this week while rescuing her dog from a similar group of river otters at the university where another mother told the Anchorage Daily News, Mark, that her son, a nine-year-old boy, was taken to the emergency room and had a rabies shot and treatment after being bitten several times near a duck pond. And he has two fang marks on his back thigh and one on the front thigh of each leg, said his mother there, Mark. So you've got to be careful about these um, otters, Mark. But, you know, I haven't seen any otters in the wild, Mark. I haven't. um, But 
I think they're pretty cute animals, but um, steer clear of them. Take photos of them. Don't go swimming with them. That's my recommendation, Mark. Um, that's my takeaway from this story there, Mark. Um, so um, authorities said the otters would be tested for rabies, which could explain their aggression, though there has been no recent reports of rabbit otters in the region. I think so it's – um, I think um, uh, that – my, my understanding is that in a number of parts of the world, otters are making a bit of a comeback. And when they do that, they come into more... Con- they, they're sort of adapting to some urban environments. And that's not a surprise as we make more water features in our urban environment. So I just think it's a an intersection thing, like people are more likely to come into contact with them. I don't... I hope that there's not a, a rabies issue, um, but I just worry that it's going to be an ongoing problem, Brendan. Yes, and speaking of otters, Mark, um, our second news story is about otters as well, isn't it? Well, this one's about um, sea otters and how, um, uh, uh, once again, uh, we've been making a little bit of a theme of the interconnectedness of the world. And um, this is an interesting one where, uh, you know, a predator, um, the sea otters are well known for diving down into um, eelgrass beds and uh, collecting clams and mussels and there's everyone will have seen those pictures of them lying on their back floating on the water and smashing the mussels open with a stone or whatever um, and and this article scar- uses the word scarfing them down once they've cracked the mussel open they scarf it down um, I don't know whether that's a technical word or uh, or whether just a bit of um, literary license. But the interesting thing is that um, eelgrass meadows where sea otters live are um, are better um, because the otters dive down, they um, use their sensitive whiskers to find the mussels, then they dig them out, leaving a little bit of a divot, an empty space. And those empty spaces in the seabed allow seedlings to to take root um, and thereby... um, they uh, enhance the genetic diversity of that seagrass bed and um, and make it more uh, stable and resilient to uh, other effects. The beds where otters are not, um, they tend to grow denser and they grow um, by stolons, by, um, you know, um, uh, um, uh, uh, extensions uh, that are that are the same genetic material. The plants grow under the seabed and up pops another plant, but it's just an extension of the same genetic material. So um, they're much less uh, genetically diverse, those sea, seagrass, eelgrass beds without the otters, um, and therefore they turn out to be much less resilient. And um, it's fascinating how... Uh, um, these keystone species um, that, uh, um, you know, look one-dimensional, but they actually turn out to be ecosystem engineers. They change the nature of their actual environment by uh, the actions they take. And, and it is a little bit surprising to think a, a predator, an animal that's going to eat the the, uh, the clams and mussels, um, that they have such a profound effect, maybe 30% more allelic richness um, in the seagrass meadows that they uh, they operate in. So um, it once again points to the complexi- complexity and uh, interconnectedness of the wild world, Brendan. Yes, 
and you just made me hungry then, Mark. I think I need to scarf down some um, <laughs> dinner after we've recorded because I still haven't had my dinner. Um, scarfing, yes. Um, yeah. Well, good story, Mark. Good story. Um, that's all I'll say. Um, well, I'll say one other thing. Um, that was from, and we'll link to it at vetgurus.com for this episode. That was from nationalgeographic.com. And as usual, um, the presentation and the layout um, of this particular article, including the, the pictures, were were fantastic. So, yeah, they certainly do a good job. And we, we've mentioned it before about um, how... It's a visual feast, isn't it? Um, the articles on um, National Geographic. Um, so there you go. They draw you in with that imagery. They certainly do. Um, well, I think with that, Mark, I don't think you do. You have a review for us this week. I don't Not this week. You, you don't. Well, in that case, we will jump into our main topic, which is a well, it's one that you wanted to um, to present. So I'll quiz you on this one, Mark, and it's pelican medicine. Pelican medicine. Um, so that's a bit out there, isn't it, Mark? Um, but it, I think it's a, a species of, of bird that you particularly um, have a fondness for. And they are, I'd call them a, a magnificent um, animal. And, um, yeah, talk, us, talk to us a little bit about this species, Mark. Uh, tell well, us about I, pelicans. I think largely around the world they considered you know birds the specific pelicans and their related birds are um, probably more zoo animals and, and there is a bit of uh, information in um, the zoo literature on how to treat various members of the order pelicana pelicaniformes um, but um i in australia here we're lucky to have uh, um, the australian pelican being a relatively common bird and while it's common, it's still uh, very impressive. Um, and it's a bird that uh, frequents um, waterways. Um, it's a, a bird that eats fish. Um, and um, and as a consequence, it's commonly in locations where people might see them. And if they do have a problem, um, then it's very likely there's, in fact, organised groups who um, have specific techniques for capturing pelicans that might uh, have uh, wild pelicans that might have a problem um, and uh, they often those groups will often approach veterinarians to have a look at the pelicans um, and um, and so there are a number of um, of interesting things to be aware of that just make them a little bit different to other birds I think my summary would be there's some unique challenges isn't there <laughs> with dealing with pelicans Mark so well, perhaps do you want to maybe mention some of those common or the most common reasons why they may be presented to a veterinary clinic? Well, just before I do, I'm very keen to do that, but I was going to mention what you should do when someone does. There's a couple of things to be, uh, to be aware of in terms of restraint and handling. And the first one is um, that... Um, you know, be careful. They're big animals and they can have, they tend not to be um, uh, as bad as some of their close relatives. The Aningas, the darters, will jab you with their beak very close or into your eye if you're careless. Um, the pelicans are a little bit slower than the darters and so that's not so much of a worry. But um, uh, their beak 
has on the inside of it some bread knife-like qualities, um, which slice the fish they eat up and hold them in place. And they can give you a bit of a nasty cut, and uh, so it's important to handle them very carefully. And when you do handle them, there's a couple of things that... Uh, just a couple of things to be aware of. The first one is um, the uh, extensions of the air sacs beneath the skin. So um, it gives... When you handle them, they feel very pillowy. They um, are very, very similar in sensation to an animal that has subcutaneous emphysema. Um, these pockets of uh, air under the skin are extensions of the respiratory tract, the uh, air sac system, um, and they are designed in many um, uh, splash diving birds, uh, gannets and whatnot, um, to protect the body from the impact uh, with the water. And while our Australian pelicans don't, uh, don't do the diving from the sky routine, many of the overseas species do, and all of them have this subcutaneous um, air cushion. Um, it, is, it is likely to get worse. It does seem to get worse with stress. It's much more noticeable the, the physiologic features that allow them to develop this these pockets of air become more noticeable in stressful situations. So um, don't be surprised if they feel like they've got subcutaneous emphysema. It's unlikely to be pathologic. It's likely to be physiologic. And the other thing is, while you're holding that beak to make sure that it, um, it doesn't uh, do any damage to you, it's a good thing not to hold it closed, Brendan. This is uh, um, these birds because they're diving birds. They have um, their nostrils have closed over. They breathe through their mouth, and they have no nostrils in their beak. And so, if you grab their beak and hold it rigidly closed to make sure it doesn't bite you and hurt you, um, you can make it very difficult for these birds to breathe normally. Um, and so, slipping. Um, something, maybe a, uh, a an elastoplast or coflex roll into the space between the two beaks and then holding the beaks against that so they stay just ajar will make the bird panic less and enable it to breathe while you're handling it. What, what sort of weight would these birds be, Mark? They, it's surprising, Brendan. They generally weigh between... Uh, four and six kilos but um it's when i quote the weight of these birds to people it's it's um it le it sort of leads you down the wrong path because um you know a a, a um a four kilogram cat um, which has no air sacs of course is is not a very big cat um but a four kilo um pelican because significant parts of it are air um, they are big big birds and um, and it's surprise it always surprises me when they come in and we weigh them that uh, despite their size um, they're not um, heavy animals um, so yeah big a big male the males tend to be a little bit bigger and um, they might get to six kilos and what do you reckon as an estimate is if if you held out those Wings, Mark. What? What? What's that wingspan? <laughs> um, I that Big. probably something of the order of um, uh, just shy of uh, seven feet. There, there. Each wing is just a um, a touch over a meter, um, and uh, the um, and add the body. You're probably talking two point two meters. Big, wide Big birds. 
So what are they presented most commonly to the vet clinics for assessment of? Well, there's a couple of common things. Um, the first one is um, uh, that um, a misadventure of various sorts, often involving fishing equipment and so um, maybe trying to extract a, a fishing line or um, disentangle them from some uh, fishing line or fishing net or they've swallowed a fish or a piece of bait that has a hook in it and then uh, formulating a bit of a plan to get that out. That's a very common presentation. Um, uh, we do uh, see a number of birds that have a variety of neurologic signs, um, and these birds, uh, we definitely uh, have a number of botulism cases, um, and there's also a number of um, uh, uh, um, blue-green algae uh, um, toxins, um, the uh, variety of toxins that um, uh, sea animals can provide, um, particularly those uh, filtration ones. Um, they've definitely been published cases of uh, just pulling up the, the my paper. Here we go. Dem I love this word, Brendan. Demoic acid, um, which is the the um, the neurotoxin which causes amnesic shellfish poisoning in people um, and there have been publications uh, particularly overseas which suggest uh, pelicans can suffer from that as well um, so there are a number of uh, intoxications that uh, pelicans um, suffer as well yes so what do you do when you they want somebody wanders in with a a pelican into your clinic, Mark. What, 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 what's the thoughts that go through your mind? Well, the the um, first one, the most important one, is that um, you often have to contemplate a short anaesthetic to uh, to do a you know a thorough examination, um, particularly if there's misadventure, maybe a, a fracture or a, a fish hook, as we mentioned before. You're probably going to want to take an X-ray, so uh, contemplating a short anaesthetic um, is a good thing to get ready for. Um, and how do you do that? Uh, it's. I find um, uh, that I, the first thing to mention about the anaesthetic is that um, you want to use the the uh, veins of the leg, the median metatarsal veins. Um, they I struggle very much. The big wings um, are very hard to gain venous access, and those uh, areas of uh, subcutaneous gas make it very difficult to gain access to the jugular. So go straight for the veins of the legs. And fortunately for us, those veins are, are generous and easy to access. And we regularly catheterize those in the first instance rather than, um, you know, so we can get repeated intravenous access. Um, and then um, because we can get that intravenous access, we find uh, using an intravenous induction agent to be useful with these guys. Um, uh, and so uh, we would regularly use a dose of alfaxan. Um, there are other places in the world where mixtures of um, ketamine and diazepam are used. Um, but um, but uh, uh, getting them induced that way makes life a little bit easier. They are relatively easy to intubate. They have almost a very reduced tongue, almost no tongue at all. Um, they have this uh, little cartilaginous process just within the glottis 
in the midline, um, and uh, it can make a very large bore. You know, if you have a feel of their neck and you go, oh, that, uh, you know, I'm going to be able to fit a, a, a seven millimeter internal diameter endotracheal tube down that, um, you'll come a cropper because this process um, definitely uh, interferes with the insertion of, uh, of large bore endotracheal tubes. And you can still intubate them. Um, you can use a, a smaller tube um, and... Uh, and I tend to use uh, cuffless ones. I make adjustments because, you know, it's not going to be a perfect seal. They're not going to um, get, um, uh, you know, you're not going to have a completely sealed off airway, uh, but um, a smaller tube that can slide past that, uh, um, uh, that process inside the glottis um, can allow you to access the airways and uh, maintain anesthesia with uh, isoflurane or one of the other um, volatile anesthetic agents. Yes, and what sort of, we're drilling down to details here, but just curious, um, what sort of oxygen flow rates or gas flow rates would you use? Um, so I would normally be using something uh, of the order of two litres per minute as our oxygen flow rate. Um, the, the, my logic being that um, that's going to be above minute volume um, and therefore um, it will overflow out um, through the, the, uh, the space beside the cartilaginous process um, and we'll be able to maintain... Um, the you know the concentration from the machine if we go much lower than that then we're going to get uh, we're going to allow some room air to sidle in beside the tube and uh, dilute the anesthetic gas the other thing about pelicans um, that's been published overseas and um, I, I it's never been a problem for us but um, uh, we've because we've never used nitrous um, in our anesthetic uh, protocols, but um, it does seem to badly mess up. Nitrous seems to badly mess up that subcutaneous um, extension of the air sac, and they can get into some problems with um, how well they can ventilate. Apparently, if uh, use nitrous, so um, uh, straight oxygen um, and that two liters per minute flow rate. Excellent. Any other unique challenges, Mark? That pop into your head about these birds. well i think the only other one i was going to mention was that um one of the common reasons we see them is because they present with those neurologic conditions particularly botulism um and uh and the good news is that for mo for at least for a majority of the birds there there's a good chance that they will recover from those uh toxicities um, but they do need um, some extended time with uh, with carers they they need to have um, repeated blood tests to make sure they're not develop, developing complications um, maybe aspergillus or uh, bacterial infections we do maintain intravenous catheters in in those birds for um, you know, three days at a two or three days at a time. So um, it's important to really practice aseptic technique in getting those catheters in place because they're going to have to last a long time. Um, yes. And obviously that relationship with a, a quality carer who's experienced with de dealing with these birds, um, that's a pretty critical thing. Excellent. Well, I have not been fortunate 
to have one of these beautiful animals in my clinic, Mark. So I'm, I'm feeling a little bit jealous um, of you chatting about them. Um, and it must be a bit of a pri- privilege when you do get them in. Um, h- how many of them are sort of damaged beyond repair when you've you've seen them, Mark? And this is a question that, you know, you and I constantly um, uh, have discussions about at what point do you... Um, do you uh, do you not go any further? What At what point are you asking an animal to go through too much? The good thing, I think, with pelicans is that they are um, very resilient birds and, uh, and they do have a, uh, a significant capacity to recover. Um, there, are, there definitely are some, uh, particularly with um, some of the you know, more aggressive, multi-hooked um, uh, baits or um, uh, uh, fishing equipment, um, there, there can be some serious internal damage done when the birds um, ingest those. And there are certain times where you can get those out of their big pouch underneath their beak. Um, they might get jagged in there around the um, the uh, remnant tongue. But um, if they go down deeper than that, they can be you know that can be a reason to not go any further with these animals. Yes. Well, you have to send me a pic or two of a pelican at your clinic, Mark, and I'll post that on our web page for this week's episode. Um, any final comments uh, about just, pelican medicine? <laughs> just um, uh, you know, the general principles of bird medicine. Uh, I'll always like when you and I talk about these odd things. That I think it's uh. The, the you learn your general principles um, and then learn the spe- specific peculiarities of, uh, of each of the individual species and adapt to what you do. Um, and I think um, uh, they're, they're great animals to work with. And once you're aware of those uh, species-specific problems, um, you can do a lot with them. I feel enlightened, Mark, after your dissertation there. Fantastic. And I think with that, Mr. Outro is here. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening, vetgurus.com. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.